Welcome to Someday is Here, a podcast for Asian American women on leadership and culture. I'm your host, Vivian Mabuni. This podcast has been created to carve out a space for Asian American women to explore and validate living in both Eastern and Western worlds. Each week, we will celebrate our heritage and highlight Asian American history. My guests and I will explore our various Asian American journeys, both the parts that we are proud of and the parts that have brought pain. We'll discuss practical tips on leadership and our favorite comfort foods, of course. This is a place and a space to bring words and understanding to our shared experience living biculturally. I am so glad you're listening and look forward to your feedback. Enjoy the show. everyone. This is Vivian Mabuni. I am the host of Someday is Here, and I'm really glad that you are here with us today. We are in season two, and I hope you have been enjoying all the different guests and the live, um, live event recording that we had. And today's guest, I'm so excited about, uh, Liz Kleinrock. She is an anti-bias and anti-racist educator of both children and adults, and she creates content for K through 12 students around issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And she started her career in education as an AmeriCorps volunteer teaching in Oakland. And then she served as both a classroom educator and a diversity coordinator in Los Angeles, California. So she got her master's degree at UCLA and she worked with schools and school districts throughout the U.S. to develop workshops and trainings for adults that support culturally responsive practices that fit the needs of specific communities. So just this past uh, 2018, Liz received the Teaching Tolerance Award for Excellence in Teaching, and her lessons on teaching consent and personal boundaries to students have gained international media attention. She has a really robust following on Instagram over at Teach and Transform. And she has a, a, a TED Talk in 2019 that has been viewed over a million times. It's on how to teach kids to talk about taboo topics, on building foundations of equity with young learners. And she's working on her first book for educators. And so she just, I just loved our conversation, especially because she is the first transracial adoptee guest on the Sundays Here uh, podcast. So she was born in Korea and was adopted to a Jewish family in DC, and that's where she grew up. And so she shares about, you know, some of the parts of being an adoptee. Uh, phrases that have been hurtful to her growing up, um, giving us insight into feelings of imposter syndrome, of being seen as a real Asian when she's grown up in an environment that has not been around a lot of Asians. So um, I uh, just loved our conversation. I really did. And Liz is smart and kind and it's just very knowledgeable. And I just can't wait for you to meet Liz. So enjoy this week's show. All right, so this week's Did You Know, since we are interviewing Liz, who is an educator, is on um, education. So 
Asian Americans are the fastest growing population and classrooms are more diverse than they have ever been. However, Asian American educators make up less than 2% of teachers and Asian American history is wide, widely left out of U.S. history books, which is why we have the Did You Know segment during our podcast. One of the first individuals to make changes to both those statistics was Alice Fung Yu. Um, Alice was from San Francisco, and she's the first Asian American school teacher. Born March 2nd, 1905, her family owned the Omega Mine in Nevada County, California, where they were one of, the, of two Chinese families living in the town. So she, Alice, was the first of her siblings to graduate high school and made it her personal goal to become a public school teacher. She was hired as San Francisco's first Chinese public school teacher in 1926 in Commodore Stockton Elementary School, where she taught for 34 years. Her roles included counselor, administrator, nurse, and clerk, writing and translating Chinese. In an interview towards the end of her teaching career, she said she sought to show her students how to manage a dual culture, not only appreciating their ancient Chinese culture, but also learning how to be modern and progressive. With the birth of her son, who was born with cerebral palsy, she went back to school at 57 and working with those with speech disabilities, she arranged education trips to China. She received credentials in special education and speech therapy from UC Berkeley. Her contributions to education remains influential even today, and she was awarded the Phoebe Apperson Hart Medallion as one of San Francisco's Distinguished Ten for her broad spectrum of contribution and accomplishments, as well as encouraging her courage for pursuing her dreams in a hostile environment. And that is this week's Did You Know? All right, welcome to season two of Someday Is Here, and I'm really, really thrilled for today's guest, Liz Kleinrock, and she is, as you've heard in the introduction, um, an award-winning teacher, uh, educator, um, just resourcer, and such an incredible voice in this season in our the history, I think, of our country. So I am thrilled and honored to have Liz here. Um, we will link up all of the different places for you to follow her great work um, and her TED Talk, which I listened to twice because it was so good. <laughs> so, so here I have the opportunity to have a conversation with Liz. So Liz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it very sincerely. So this is so fun. I'm just kind of pretending that we are having conversation over coffee and just would love to uh, just hearing more, just would love to hear more of your story and especially just growing up and all of what that was like for you as an Asian American woman. Sure. Um, so I was actually born in South Korea um, and I was adopted when I was about six months old and grew up in a awesome, very white Jewish family in Washington, DC, um, where I spent my entire childhood. Um, 
I was raised very much in, it was a great environment. I loved my community, loved my family, have a great relationship with my parents. Um, but was one of, oh gosh, maybe like four-ish Asian students, like in my grade, maybe five, um, and didn't really connect at all to that part of my identity until college. And it was very much something that I had to go searching for. Mm. Um, and now in my work as an educator, like I went to school in St. Louis, that was really where like I did a lot of that work, really became friends with more like Korean international students, started taking Korean language classes, mm. um, pretty much just like wanted to make up for all of that lost time. Um, and after school moved to Oakland, California, where I taught in AmeriCorps for two years and then moved to LA. And I've been here since 2011, um, got my master's wow. in education at UCLA and have been teaching here ever since. And my main focus is on anti-bias and anti-racism in schools and um, helping teachers with like culturally responsive practices, um, pretty much to make sure that all kids have these experiences in school where they are seen and represented in ways that, um, you know, I didn't have growing up. Mm, that's so. Did you grow up with any siblings? Nope, it's just me. I have I have oh, nine cousins, but uh, no siblings, just me. So tell me about like what it was like, um, you know, in. I, I can kind of relate growing up in Boulder, Colorado. So I grew up and I was like a handful of Asians in my graduating class of 600 something, you know, there's just so few. And um, I'm curious, like what that was like for you and especially with the, uh, the experience as an adoptee. And um, I'm, I'm thinking that um, so many of the listeners uh, just with a growing, this is a growing group of Asian American women, which I feel so under-resourced and just would love for you to kind of unpack what it was like and maybe some of your, some of your journey, even as, as you remember in childhood. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the phrase imposter syndrome really summarizes all of it. Um, and that mm. definitely still follows me to this day. Um, it's been really amazing in the work that I've been doing now to be invited to speak on podcasts like this, invited to speak on topics that really pertain to being Asian American or being Asian and female. Um, and I think like I'm in my thirties now, but when I get those invitations, I'm like, Oh, like you still see me as like a real Asian, like I'm a real mm -hmm. Korean. And I feel like that was always something growing up where, you know, I had the appearance, but underneath like I still identified more with like dominant white culture, Jewish culture. Um, mm. And especially like living in LA now, like I live a couple blocks from Koreatown. There are so many Koreans and Korean Americans here. And I love being there because I love being around people who look like me, but I'm terrified that like the second I open my mouth, they'll know that, <laughs> you know, not that I'm a fake Korean, but just I'm not perhaps as culturally Korean as they assume that I am. Mm -hmm. um, growing up because I was one of, I think, two or three Korean kids in my grade. Um, it wasn't really something that came up unless I was actually friends with one of those other kids. And I would think about it when I went over to his house for play dates. And mm -hmm. um, I went to Korean culture camp once, which was just such a very strange experience that I did not really enjoy when I was around like maybe seven or eight years old. Mm. Um, and then also in college, like getting to know Korean international students and wanting so desperately to fit in with them, but I was never fluent enough. Um, 
I studied there in school and got an internship in Seoul over a summer and lived with a host family and tried to learn how to cook and, you know, a lot of like the cultural norms. Mm. So I can definitely put on that face if I need to. Um, mm-hmm. But I feel like I'm still always afraid that somebody's going to like find me out or, or point out mm. that it's not enough. Yeah. yeah. Do you find that your values, like as you've, you know, taken time and invested into Korean culture, Asian culture, um, do you find clashes in your values then with what you grew up with and what you're learning? And how do you, how do you hold those intention? Yeah, I think like it's really challenging to try to find out parts of your identity and your culture when you're learning about it from somebody else. Mm. Um, and there are so many stereotypes of Asian culture and Korean culture embedded in, in media and, you know, even look like what's happening with like the coronavirus these days and like the narratives right. that are being perpetuated about Chinese citizens and Chinese Americans. Um, and so trying to kind of fit into this like constantly developing framework of who am I versus like, what are the integral parts about being Korean, but I'm still learning about it from somebody else. Like I haven't experienced mm, it myself. Right. Um, I think some of the people who I met in Korea very much represented a far, a far more progressive mindset than I think media representation gives them. Um, mm. Like very mm-hmm. open-minded, very liberal, very accepting. And then also met some folks who are far more along like the conservative end. Um, mm-hmm. I had a Korean boyfriend who had a very conservative traditional family and truly for them, like it came down to like she has Korean blood, but like culturally she's not Korean. And so she's just not going to fit in um, mm. and trying to like reconcile all of those ideas. So it's certainly been a challenge, but I also feel like being adopted, I've also been able to have the privilege of picking and choosing a little bit more than others. And that's something mm. that I've really tried to embrace. Like there are some parts of um, you know, Korean culture that I really love. Like I love how it's so focused on the collective, you know, the mm-hmm. family is so important. Um, and honestly, like when I look at how polarized like our country is on so many issues, like the fact that over a million people went and protested in the street in Korea to impeach their president, like that's a type of solidarity that I've never seen within the United States. Um, mm. I think is pretty incredible. We could probably stand yeah. to learn something. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm curious too, with the Jewish family, you know, family that you grew up in. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. <laughs> I loved season one. Season two, I didn't love as much as season one, but I loved season one. And I, as an Asian American, I was relating to quite a lot of Jewish culture, like the way that they, you know, just like keeping up, keeping up appearances or, you know, did you experience some of that too growing up or what was that like? Like how, how Jewish was your upbringing? My upbringing was super Jewish um, and still is. Like, mm-hmm. um, my family keeps kosher at home. Um, mm-hmm. I was bat mitzvahed. I went to Hebrew school every week. And when I got older, it turned into twice a week, which I was not as big a fan of. Um, <laughs> but also, moving to Southern California has been really amazing because I've been able to connect with a lot more Jews of color um, mm. and also recognizing, like, within a Jewish space, having felt very marginalized because I was the only person who wasn't white 
in my mm-hmm. synagogue or in my class um, and have dealt with a lot of racial mi- microaggressions within the Jewish mm-hmm. community. I often will still get, oh, like, how are you Jewish? Are you here with somebody else? There's just always this assumption mm-hmm. that because I don't look like, quote unquote, like Ashka normative, like I don't... Yeah like the Larry David stereotype or like the Mrs. Maisel stereotype Mm -hmm. that clearly I must have come upon this community in another way other than that, aside from my family. Um, So explaining that can be kind of irritating, but I think that a lot of progressive synagogues are doing a lot to stress inclusivity to their Mm -hmm. congregants, which is something that I've definitely appreciated. But yeah, my family is very much in the Jewish faith and tradition. Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm just picturing like navigating that space and I'm thinking about um, relating with some of your experience, you know, with having a face that's Asian, but values that are completely different. So if you were to stand in the middle of a crowd in Koreatown, for example, and or in Korea, the country in South Korea, because we can't go into North Korea, but in South Korea, um, that in, so the way that I, I picture it is when I'm standing there in the middle of, you know, a huge Chinese population from China, it's different than being Chinese American, but my value system is so different. And I, I feel like it's a, um, <laughs> it's the Mulan story where when will my reflection be who I am inside? And so I, I'm curious if that's been part of your experience as well. And how, how do you hold intention you on the outside and you on the inside. Yeah, it's been really, it's definitely been a journey. Um, Certain parts have certainly been more challenging than others. I think college was really the hardest part because I was trying to be so intentional with just immersing myself in as much Korean culture, Korean language, having Korean friends, having a Korean partner um, as possible. It's like I wanted to make up for all of those years of lost time and compensate mm-hmm. for everything that I that I didn't have growing up. Um, I think I probably also went a little bit overboard um, <laughs> because I also found that when I was in Korea, I very much, I wanted to fit everybody's expectation, um, mm-hmm. knowing that I was coming from this Western background and Western perspective and also embodying all of these characteristics that are not always totally desirable in Korean women, Mm. (laughs) Um, both physical, like, and emotional. Like, I was told that I was too loud, is too opinionated. I was also too dark. Um, I think, Mm. like, I I am kind of a little bit on on the browner side of the spectrum for Korean Americans. I'm also coming from a place in, like, the south of South Korea where folks are a little bit darker. Mm. Um, So... I was told often to cover up, like you should try this skin whitening cream or like brightening cream. Um, You should be wearing like SPF 100 every single day. Um, You're not feminine enough. You should be wearing dresses more often. Like it got really exhausting. Mm. And luckily, like a lot of what I've seen coming out of like K-pop culture since then, like I haven't been back to Korea since 2008 and I'm going back this summer and I'm really excited, but it seems to certainly have come a long way since I was there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in a lot of the work I do along racial justice, being really aware that when I show up in my, you know, East Asian presenting self, that people also have some pretty ingrained ideas of my personality and what I must be like. Mm -hmm. Um, And recognizing that working in diversity and inclusion 
that actually grants me an enormous amount of privilege because mm-hmm. I check the box as a person of color, but also with that model minority stereotype, we're going to hire her. She's a person of color. She's female. That's great. And she might allow us to stay in our comfort zone a little bit. You know, she's mm. probably soft-spoken. She's probably really nice. She's probably <laughs> really accommodating. Um, and I'm so not about that. That's I'm right. Go up and, and flip it on its head. Um, but we're recognizing right. that, you know, in this work, it also requires that I flex that privilege to combat anti-blackness in the Asian community and a lot of mm. the workshops that I do with different folks. And yeah, there are all these moving pieces, but I'm grateful to have all of that insecurity in the past and to also have been able to learn from it to have a more fully formed idea of who I am now. Mm, that's beautiful. I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, I would love to hear, and this is for a few different reasons, but I think especially to help educate those who uh, may feel uncomfortable with how to talk with um, an Asian American woman who's an adoptee with the right terminology and wanting to have conversation and and not be insensitive. But I would love for you, if you're willing to share, you know, just what have been phrases or incidents that have been painful for you um, as an Asian American woman and especially as an adoptee? Oh, gosh. Okay. So I'm actually in the process of brainstorming a picture book about this. Um, Specifically to... help kids who are adopted and also to help like teachers and adults who interact with kids who are adoptees. Um, Wonderful. Okay. We'll definitely link up when that book is out, Liz, we are going to, yes, good. Yes. Um, A lot of the questions I got when I was younger, they're so innocent, you know, because if I'm six and the kid asking me is six, like I know they don't mean anything by it, but it's, you know, it's the impact over intention too. Mm. Um, I got asked a lot of questions about, you know what? Anything involving the the word "real parents" was really mm. challenging. Like how we define our family—if it's blood related or just the people who look after you and love you. Uh, got a lot of like, where are your real parents? Why didn't your real real parents want you? Like a lot of questions around um, their reasoning for choosing to give me up for adoption. Mm. Um, you know. I know that people are often coming from places of curiosity and we have so much curiosity when somebody doesn't really fit into our own frame of understanding. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the biggest thing I can caution non-adopted or non-Asian folks with is considering your relationship with the person you're questioning. Like, Mm. am I trying to find this information to like deepen our relationship or purely because like, I'm curious, this person doesn't make sense to me. And like, I need to know this. Um, Mm. Probably every Asian person has dealt with the, like, where are you from? But like, where are you from, from? (laughs) And usually the first thing I'll just say is, well, I'm from Washington, DC. Like that's where I grew up. It's like, well, mm-hmm. what about your parents? I'm like, well, Long Island and Silver Spring, Maryland. Like, that's where <laughs> my parents are from. True um, story. So much dancing around that. But yeah, just considering like your intent in asking the question and for whose benefit are you, mm-hmm. are you engaging in this inquiry? <laughs> oh, that's a very helpful way to think and move toward. So I really, I really appreciate that. So flip side of that, um, how, and at this point in time, um, 
as an Asian American woman, what about being an Asian American woman has brought you um, a healthy pride in your, you know, at this point in your journey? I think really advocating for the inclusivity of Asian Americans in racial justice work has been something mm. that I'm really, really proud of and I want to continue to highlight. Um, I've spoken a lot in different workshops and a lot of things that I write around about how a lot of the conversation about race and racial injustice in the United States operates along this black and white binary, which mm-hmm. excludes anyone who doesn't fit one yeah. of those um, identities, but it erases the Asian American experience, indigenous experiences, Latinx experiences, like there are people mm-hmm. who are biracial and multiracial um, yeah. and that these narratives and conversations are so necessary for us to understand the legacy of U.S. history and also mm. what's happening today, um, mm-hmm. particularly as I spoke a little bit about like the model minority myth earlier, mm-hmm. that there is such a legacy of anti-Asian racism, especially directed towards Chinese and Japanese folks. Um, mm-hmm. And people really are just not aware of that. So when thinking about diversity, inclusion, and racial justice, if it's doesn't include Asians and Asian Americans, it's not inclusive. It's not mm-hmm. intersectional and being able to remind people of that. Oh, that's so great. That is so great. I can't wait to connect um, our listeners up to your resources and just, yeah, I think you, your, I even was looking through your Instagram um, and it, in, in your bio, you said, do the follow, like go to the highlight reel to kind of explain like, this is kind of where I'm coming from and this is the kind of tone I would like to set. But I, I, I appreciated just the, the intentional directives to help people to have really good conversations that are meaningful, but respectful, you know, and learning to model that I think is so important. That's often missing because I think people, um, defensive people cannot empathize. So it's just the ability to actually know people and know people's stories is a gift. And I, I think often Asians is what I've noticed is the, the cultural pressure to not rock the boat or to not stick out sometimes keeps us from engaging and speaking up. And you had mentioned in your, in your highlight reel about how silence also is a, as or it was your TED talk. It was your TED talk about how silence also communicates loudly, uh, and so I love that you're doing that. So thank you. It's fantastic. Well, that would I would love to kind of transition from there, and I would love for you to share with us, Liz, uh, some leadership principles that are uh, steering your life, or you know what you are seeking to attain, or what you would you know, want this next generation to know, I mean, any, anything in the area of leadership really broad and wide, but go for it. Okay. So I thought about, it. I have a couple, hopefully I'll actually remember them. Um, the first one was something that was, that came out of a very challenging conversation with my principal in my second year of teaching. Um, I had a student who was going through a lot, um, who I very much empathized with, but could not deny that it was certainly having an impact on my classroom community and how every single day was going in our classroom and being sat down and being told, you know, like we recognize that this is really challenging, but it seems like you are focusing way too much on the parts of 
your day that you cannot control rather than the parts that you can. Um, Mm. And not like to minimize what you're experiencing, but just if you're going to put all your energy into this place and you actually have no control over the outcome or what happens, you're going to exhaust yourself. Mm. Um, And that also is very similar to advice um, that my parents gave me a lot growing up is really just trying to differentiate you know, big deal, little deal. Um, is this something that if I I put my time and energy into, I'm going to, you know, potentially see an outcome that I want. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, it it wasn't. I was totally misdirecting my energy. I was exhausting myself. It was, you know, a guaranteed track for me to reach burnout very, very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And there were other things going on where I could have directed more of my time to have you know, created a better experience for all parties involved. Mm. Um, So that was definitely a big one. Is that something that you kind of go into evaluating or is that something you look back on and realize, ooh, I missed there? How does that work for you? Like, I mean, I try to use hindsight to direct what happens in the future. And I think like when I work with schools or clients who might be struggling with diversity work or inclusion work in their environments, as a consultant, having to take that perspective and think about if I have X amount of time with this school, with this teacher, what mm-hmm. is going to be realistic? Um, what's going to be measurable? I do not mm-hmm. want to set them up with this huge lofty objective that they're not going to be able to, like, it's going to take generations to reach that. Sure, sure. Um, but also thinking about the way that I have to engage with people on social media. If somebody is coming at me from a very combative perspective or, mm. you know, uh, from a very aggressive place, mm-hmm. um, am I going to really waste my energy here arguing with somebody on the internet? And chances are, there's no way they're ever going to have their opinions weighted by something that a person told them on Instagram. Right. (laughs) That's probably not the best use of my time. Mm. Oh, those are, that's a great principle. And you said you had a second one. Do you remember? Yeah, just, I've thought a lot. um, And I think in the past two years in particular, thinking about the role of being an empowered woman and what that means for somebody who Mm. identifies as a woman. Um, I think I have had to do a lot of unlearning around what it means to be an intersectional feminist, what it truly means to support women and to want to see women be empowered and have autonomy and recognize that anything that I'm doing to police their actions or behaviors in any way is completely detrimental and the opposite of what I truly believe in. That if you are coming from a place of empowerment, you desire then to empower other people, Mm. not to hoard it for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. this is so cheesy. Okay, so I love Tiffany Haddish and I love um, her stand-up special. She did this one called uh, They Ready. And it's pretty much all these other comedians who she's brought in. Um, And what I loved about it is at the beginning of every episode, all of these lesser known comedians say like, she promised that when she made it, she would come back for us. And she did. And I think that Mm. is just the epitome of what I really want to be about. What I think is so beautiful that when you have reached a certain Mm. level and none of it matters, like if you're doing it by yourself, like, you should want to take as many people as you can with you. That's right. Oh, uh, my heart resonates with that so much. And I've always associated that that principle with um, part of my DNA as an Asian American learning the collective. You know, it was like, there's just, it, the world is so much bigger than my individualistic life that, you know, at, we, we're all about thinking for the 
who thanking those who've gone before, you know, looking back to, you know, see who's coming and then just linking arms on the way. So I, I love that picture that you just painted, Liz. That's, it resonates deeply in my heart. So, so, okay. Now my next question is what are some of your favorite Asian comfort foods? I love Korean food. I like, I truly could eat Korean food every single day. And for a lot of non-Korean people, what they usually tend to think about is just Korean barbecue, which is great. Like Korean barbecue is awesome, but there is so much variety and depth to Korean cuisine. I think mm. my, my number one go-to, like if I'm sick, if I'm having a bad day, I want to eat sundubu so badly. Like it's spicy, like it has all this texture in it. I just want to like dump a whole pot of rice in it and just mix it together. Like it's so, so good. <laughs> um, like anything that falls within like the Korean soup stew line, um, mm. usually the spicier, the better. I'm Ooh. in a really, really happy place. Uh, do you like the spicy that leaves you with like beads of sweat on your nose and forehead kind of spicy? I don't mind that at all. As long as it like enhances the the food as a whole, it's not spicy for the sake of being spicy. Um, mm. I'm usually, I'm good. Yeah. Oh, that is so good. <laughs> What's your favorite? Oh gosh. Oh, so many, but I, I am, I'm kind of in, I lo- okay. So I love like a really good dumpling, which I'm realizing a lot of Asian cultures have their variation of dumpling. And my cousin uh, married Mexican. And my so my Mexican cousin-in-law was saying, you know, everything's a burrito. Like, you know, it's like there's the Mexican burrito, but then there's mushu pork, which is a burrito. And she's kind of going through like everything's an empanada. <laughs> you know, so I just feel like everything ends up coming back to that. But I, I'm a noodle lover. So I love ramen and I love any type of like... Um, you know, there's a Chinese dish that I love that it's like a, it's a, a noodle dish that's like pan fried. So the, the, the noodles are crunchy on the outside, but they're still kind of soft on the inside. And then you have this sauce that's full of like shrimp and shiitake mushrooms and bamboo shoots and whatever you find. And it just kind of like seeps into the noodles. And it's one of my favorite. It's called liao miao huang, which is like two sides yellow is the translation because the, the noodles are fried on both sides. So that's that one of my favorites. That sounds so good. Oh I my think, goodness. Like, Besides sushi, like Asian seafood does just not get enough love. Like mm. Korean mm. seafood is so good. Like Thai seafood is really good. Chinese yes. seafood is really good. But yes. I don't think people necessarily go there. So if you're listening and you haven't had it, you should definitely try some Asian seafood besides definitely. <laughs> and, and, you know, and we really are in Southern California, we are kind of in the mecca of Asian foods. Like we don't have to go far to get decent just about anything. So I'm with you, Liz. I'm with you. Yes. So <laughs> listeners, um, those of you who are not in, near anywhere, we are sad for you. So just come out. Get come west. Come kick it with us. Yeah. Yes, just come <laughs> kick it with us. That is so great. Well, how can listeners connect with you, with your work? Where can they find you? And we will connect these all up in the show notes too, but we'd love sure. to share that. Um, so I am by far the most active on Instagram. My handle is at teach and transform, like all one word together. Um, I also have a website, teachandtransform.org. Um, you can send me emails through there as well. Um, and oh gosh, almost a year ago, started a Patreon page also for like individual coaching. If you're an educator or somebody who works in this field and needs a little bit more individual support, um, mm. that's all linked through Instagram and my website. 
as well. I have Twitter, but I feel like people are really mean on Twitter and I don't they really are like mean it. on Twitter. <laughs> I feel the same way, Liz. I, I only go there on occasion and I like retweeting like the peppy ones, like all the, <laughs> all the funny dog tweets. But I, I, I don't, I think going back to even what you were talking about as far as like the principle of determining how much energy is going to be put towards things. I don't think I have friends who have the character and the bandwidth to engage um, with trolls. <laughs> and I, I, I find that it's a dumpster fire over on Twitter where Instagram, at least it, it can get a little heated, but by and large, there's a lot more of a, an atmosphere of warmth to me. Yeah. And especially I think just for the type of work I do, I'm a visual person. I like being able to show people what's happening. Mm. And I find like the, the character count and threads aren't always like super conducive to what I'm trying to communicate. That's true. That's true. Let's just start doing those really long threads, but then you have to unroll those and that's just, there's just too many places. So, well, we'll definitely um, link up your Instagram and your website and, and you are working on this. Is, so your children's book that's coming out that you're working on right now. And um, I'm working on a book for teachers. Kids book oh. is something like on my long-term bucket list that I would okay. absolutely love to do. It's a work in progress. Oh. But the book for educators is very real and has a very real deadline. <laughs> <laughs> and when is it set to release at this point? I think early next year is probably oh, when wow. it will come out because the final draft isn't due until June. June. Mm-hmm. Well, as a fellow author, um, I, I feel for you. Those the the edits, and then the edits of the edits, and then the edits of the edits of the copy edits. It's mind boggling. <laughs> so, cheering you on, thank cheering you. you on. Well, thank you so much for taking time and sharing your story. And um, I've just I've loved this meeting, but I look forward to like a real in-person meeting eventually. I hope since we're, we're within, awesome. the, you know, we're within two hours, which could be a half a day based on traffic, but you know, LA, this is awesome. Yeah. So, we got a lot of food to choose from. Yes, we do. Well, thank you Liz for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us this week on Some Days Here. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment and subscribe to the show so that each new episode automatically downloads to your device every week. And thank you for sharing this podcast with your friends. We would love for you to rate and review the show so that others can find out about us. A special thank you to the brilliant team that makes Some Days Here possible. The Some Days Here logo is designed by Jocelyn Chung. The original music is by Joseph Patrick with Passion Net Productions. Show notes on the website are by Vicki Pham. The sound engineer is Aaron Kretzman. The director of design and website designer is Kenny Wong. And the executive producer is Chantel Reynolds. Have a great week. And we look forward to you joining us again for another episode of Someday is Here. <laughs>